0: of Esther chapter 2 beginning at verse number 19. For the benefit of those that haven't been here for our series, we started a series on Esther and the providence of God. We define the providence of God as God's most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures and their actions. That's taken of course from the Westminster Confession of Faith question number 11. I'm sure all of you have it memorized. I just thought I'd say it out, uh, you know, as a way of explaining where we are, right? But that's, that's the doctrine of God's providence. And the book of Esther is particularly suited uh, for that, and as we've said, because it doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention God or prayer or anything of that nature. And instead, what the book of Esther shows us is that God is at work. Even if we don't see him at work, he's at work, he's behind the scenes doing his job. And so Esther chapter two, verse number 19, we'll read through to uh, chapter three and verse number 15. Give attention now to God's holy and inspired word. Esther 2.19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thun and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the nations who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business." that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every prince in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And notice this last bit, because it's particularly instructive. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, we thank you for this time. This is your word, and... These are your people. I pray that you might cement the two together. And now, Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, but the power of your Holy Spirit, and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. I was scrolling through my news feed uh, a few days ago. Uh, It's actually been over a week. And a particular um, headline caught my eye. And the headline said, Jordan Poole punched in the face. Holes news conference. Now I know there are some of you that have no idea who Jordan Poole is. Let me alleviate you of your ignorance. (laughs) Jordan Poole is a, a basketball player from the Golden State Warriors. No, I'm not a fan. I'm more of a fair weather fan than an actual fan. But that's who Jordan Poole is. And apparently he was at a practice, and uh, Draymond Green punched him in the face. I was like, well, I have to read this, or I have to see this to know what's going on. So he holds a press conference. And in the press conference, the reporters start asking him questions. They said, Jordan, how do you get through this very difficult and painful and trying time in your life? I mean, you got punched in the face, and now it's everywhere. Everyone's seeing it. How do you get through the day? And so I fully expect Jordan Poole to say, you know what? I'm a professional, and this is what professionals do. you got to overcome and transcend the situation. But that's not what Jordan Poole said. And, of course, I fully expected Jordan Poole to say, well, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, because that's what all the ballplayers say, right? They have it tattooed on their arm and all over their sneakers, but that's not what Jordan Poole said. Instead, Jordan Poole very quietly and calmly quoted John 13.7, and Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand you see, he said, after or whenever I experience trials and tribulations in my life, I quote this to myself to remember that God has a plan for me. Well, I got to tell you, I was shocked that I nearly jumped out of my seat. Can you believe this? Here in front of this secular audience, he gives them a theology on God's providence. I was so excited. I got up from my seat and I ran downstairs. I said, honey, you wouldn't believe what this basketball player said. And, you know, my wife, uh, she's Presbyterian from birth, capital P, you know. She just kind of looks at me. It's like, well, what do you expect him to say? This isn't what she said. This is just her look. You know, when you've been married 14 years, you kind of just know the look. And so she just kind of gives me this look, and what do you expect him to say? That's what Christians are supposed to say. In the midst of tribulation. Now, I tell you that story for this reason. When you look at Esther chapter 3, Israel is about to get punched in the face. Israel is about to experience tribulation. And we shouldn't be surprised. In every generation, on God's recurring providence, God's people are always in trouble, they're always experiencing tribulation. Jesus Christ himself said this, in this life, you will have persecution. Translation, Dennis version, every now and then you get a left hook to the face. And the question is, when these left or right hooks come, when these trials and tribulations come, are you prepared for them? Will you be like Jordan Poole who said, I don't understand what God is doing, but afterward, I will. You see, the question isn't if you will suffer tribulation. It's when. When. And you know, part of my job as your pastor is to prepare you to duck left, duck right, and to parry. And so that's what we're going to do today. How do you handle tribulation? How do you try and know difficulties when they come to you? I have three thoughts, and it's all embedded in this passage. The first thing I want you to see is God is always preparing to save his people from tribulation. Second point, tribulation and persecution will come when you don't bow the knee. And the third one is God's providential hand will always uphold you. First point. God is always preparing to save his people from tribulation. Look at Esther chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. And again, you have another situation that seems random. What's going on at the end of Esther chapter 2? Here you have another uh, random or seemingly random thing happening. The king is being threatened by his bodyguards. Uh, uh, Mordecai finds out about it. And then Mordecai goes and tells Esther, and Esther saves the king. And then you're kind of wondering to yourself, well, wait a minute. What do wild parties, crazy decrees, beauty pageants, spa treatments, and assassination attempt have to do with one another? This is worse than a Quentin Tarantino film. I probably said his name wrong. How do they all work together? And it's not until you hit Esther chapter 3, you're like, oh, it makes sense. It makes sense. That's what God was doing with all of those wild parties and crazy decrees. He was putting things in place because his people were about to get punched in the face and suffer persecution. I love how one theologian puts it. He says... One of the glorious realities of God's providence is God puts deliberate factors in place long before they are needed. That's what God was doing. He had to put Esther in the palace. And he had to have a record of Mordecai's good deed right before his people would get annihilated. Do you know that God works like that in your life, too? I know sometimes we read scripture and we say, oh, that's, that's how God worked for them. But what's supposed to happen is when you read scripture and you read that, you say, well, wait a minute. That's how God works for me. That right now, there is a trial I don't know about. But that's okay. Because God is putting deliberate things in place right now for my life salvation. I'll never forget, my wife and I, one day, we were dating, we were in love. and You know, when you're in love and you're dating, you do crazy things. And so one of the crazy things we did one day was that we went for a walk. We didn't have food or water or our phones. And uh, both me and my wife are a little bit directionally challenged. And needless to say, we got horribly lost. Now, pause for a moment. When you all think lost, you think kind of lost. No, we weren't kind of lost. We were lost. Like the kind of lost when you look around and you wonder, oh wait, we have no idea where we're going or what we're going to do. Some of you have heard the story. But, but I have to tell it again. It's one of my favorite stories. And the reason why I love telling the story is because she told me this is the reason why she married me. Right? So we were horribly lost, and we were looking for a place to, to sort of, like, find our way out. And so my wife uh, and I began to walk, and, and, you know, the protector came out of me, you know, and I was, like, holding her by the hand and helping her over rocks and, and formulating a plan in my mind. And I said, it's getting dark. Uh, I need to probably find a place where I can dig a hole, and, and I don't know, I was thinking crazy stuff. You know, maybe I need to find a weapon. I don't know. I don't know. But at any rate, I said, it was, it was almost dusk. Was getting dusk. And I said, uh, let's go out a little bit more. So we went out a little bit more and we hit a clearing. As we hit this clearing, I'm looking around and I don't see a path to go. And all of a sudden, this big dog jumped out and started attacking us. And so I grabbed a stick and I started fighting off this dog. And in the moment that I was fighting off this dog, this woman came out of nowhere and said, no, 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 don't harm our dog. So I looked around and I was like, praise God. And so we told her, you don't understand. We're horribly lost. We don't know where we are. Could you help us? And the woman just started laughing. She said, well, where, where are you guys? are?" we told her, and she, she just kept laughing. She was like, you guys walked a pretty good distance away from where you were. Absolutely, I'll be happy to give you a ride. And in the providence of God, guess who sat on the side of the dog? that threatened to kill us and rip us apart. Yeah, I got that assignment. But here's the point that I want to make. God knew that we were going on that walk. He knew that we were going to forget our phones. He knew that we weren't going to have food and water. He knew that we were directionally challenged. And so, in his great providence, he prepared a woman and a dog. And he put it on our heart to go for a walk that day and to go for a walk in that exact place at the exact time that we came out in order to bring salvation to future Lewis's. Now, if you think that's an accident, you don't understand the world you live in. Because in the providence of God, he always prepares things beforehand, before you need it, So at the moment you need it, he shows up clearly and distinctly. John Piper in his book on providence says this is what it means to live in a God-entranced world where every action we have is used by God, not just in a few ways, but in millions of ways none of us understand. You know, we often talk about how we live in the mundane of life, and if you're a parent, you ask yourself the question, you know, every morning I get up and I feed my kids and I brush their teeth. And, and you might be thinking, the reason why I brush their teeth is because I don't want them to have cavities and stinky breath. But at the same time, God is saying, the simple action of brushing your children's teeth has millions more purposes behind it than you can fathom. Isn't that wonderful? That's what it means to live in a God-entranced world. No action that you commit in God's kingdom goes wasted. It always accomplishes the purpose for which he had. Kind of like rain. You know, when the rain, when it rains and it goes into the ground, Isaiah says, we think that that rain is just gone and we don't see the purpose of it. But Isaiah says it has a purpose, and it accomplishes the purpose for what God has ordained. In the same way, every action that you commit and do is a part of the glorious plan of God. So keep at it. Keep at it. That's a powerful reality, and that's a reality that should bring all of us great joy. That God is always working on our salvation. God is not MacGyver. Remember that show, MacGyver? God doesn't look around and say, well, I need to save them, so let me cobble together this and cobble together that. That's how, that's not how God works. God's very purposeful. One of my favorite scenes in The Last of the Mohicans, and some of you might remember this. Fantastic movie if you've never watched it. Last of the Mohicans, um, they're all held up in this fort, and they have to get a letter to another fort and so they they bring the runner. And the runner is this little wiry kid. He could probably run really fast and they tie a message to him and they tell him just run. And he said, "Well, aren't they going to kill me?" They he said, "No. No, we we have you." And so he runs out of the fourth and as he's running out of the fourth every so often an enemy pops up to kill him and Daniel Day Lewis has his sights on him. And then another one comes. And then another one comes. And I'm sorry for those of you that don't like weapons. Um, this is just an illustration. Don't go crazy. But, but, but here's the point that I want to make. And it's an important point. As you run the race of life, you might be a little scared in here, thinking that the enemy is going to pop up at any moment to take you out. But I want you to be assured that God is on on top of a tower, and he's plucking off the enemies one by one, whether you realize it or not. So keep running that race. That's the first point. The second point is, tribulation will come when you don't bow the knee. Notice chapter 3. We're introduced to Haman, the Agagite. More on that in a moment. But apparently, there was... Uh, uh, an order given out that everyone needs to bow to Haman. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why the order was given. But there was someone who didn't obey the order, and his name was Mordecai. Now, if you study the book of Esther, you'll see in the literature that, man, theologians go crazy over this section in the book of Esther. It's fun to see. You know, they're sniping back and forth. Why, why didn't he bow the knee? Perhaps he didn't bow the knee because he was anti-establishment and partly because he didn't like Haman. And on and on they go, but as theologians often do, they often miss the point. You see, Mordecai didn't bow the knee not because he was against the government. In fact, it doesn't make much sense. Notice with me that it was Mordecai who saved the king. Notice with me also that Mordecai was in the king's gate, meaning he was a king's official. That's not why Mordecai didn't bow the knee. As one Jewish scholar said, the reason why Mordecai didn't bow the knee, because bowing the knee in this context is deeply theological. This wasn't as simple as paying your taxes and being a good citizen. What he was asking Mordecai to do was to capitulate to the culture. That's what this text says. It wasn't enough that Mordecai was a good citizen. It wasn't enough that Mordecai paid his bills. Mordecai had to capitulate to the culture. Look at verse number four for proof of this. They were hounding Mordecai and saying, Mordecai, why didn't you bow the knee? And Mordecai told them, it's because I'm a Jew. And you know something about Jews at this time in Jewish history they're not exactly known for bowing the knee. That's why Haman wanted to kill all of them, because he knew that if Mordecai wouldn't bow the knee, neither would the other Jews bow the knee. And what does Haman do? Haman gets angry. Verse number five said he was filled. With fury. And if you go through the passage, you'll notice in verse number six it said he wanted to destroy the Jews. And in verse number 13, he wanted to kill and annihilate the Jews over and over again. Why? Because they wouldn't bow to knee. Now you are probably sitting there thinking to yourself, Pastor, this seems a disproportionate reaction to the offense. And I would say you're absolutely correct. Which brings me to a point of application, Christian. Whenever you live in a society and you don't bow to the cultural demands, they will always act disproportionately towards you. they will always act disproportionately among you. We see it in our day, don't we? In our day, we see when Christians don't bow the knee to the sexual revolution, we're acted disproportionately against when we don't do what the culture tells us to do, that's opposite what God has instructed us to do. They act disproportionately to us. Now, young people, I want you to listen up, because this is important. All eyes on me for a moment, and then you can go back to sleep. And here's what I want to say. For a very long time in the United States, we've been spared persecution, praise the Lord, at least outward persecution. But make no mistake that's by the hand of god but my suspicion is very soon you will be asked to bow the knee in a very public way and the question is do you know enough of what you believe and why you believe it in order that when that time comes you won't bow the knee you see sometimes when you're young you think You know, all that stuff Pastor Dennis preaches, that's for the old people. No, it's for you. It's for you. Because the time is coming, and I bet even now, you're being asked to bow the knee. And my only advice to you is, you know, how about you take an hour or so in your day, maybe watch a little bit less television and play a little less video games or whatever it is you might do spend a little bit more time in God's word learning your faith and learning how to defend it. So that one day when you're asked to bow the knee you will not compromise that you'll be like um, like Mordecai you'll say no. Now there's one more thing I have to say about this passage and it's super important. Whenever you start talking about cultural issues and, and bowing the knee we We all like to draw battle lines, us versus them. I don't want to get into that. In fact, recently I made a new friend on the soccer team. His name is Jimmy, cool guy. If you're ever at the soccer uh, thing out here at uh, the Baptist Church, I'll introduce you to Jimmy. And Jimmy was talking to me one day, and he said, Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, at least this past Saturday, and Jimmy said, Pastor, I think we're all missing the point. And I said, Jimmy, what are you talking about, man? I just met you. I don't know what you mean by that. And Jimmy said, Well, Pastor, everyone wants to draw the draw the battle lines between black and white, rich and poor, men and women, Republican and Democrat, SEC and the Pac-10. But he said those aren't the battle lines that we should be drawing. He said the battle lines, you need to tell your people that the real battle isn't physical, the real battle is spiritual. And isn't that true? The Bible says in Ephesians six twelve, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You know what I realize? When you fight the wrong battles, you tend to lose the war. And if you come to the battle with the wrong weapons, you get smoked. And for too often, Christians have relied on weapons that are not that are too much of this world and not the weapons of the spiritual world. And Paul tells us right after that what those weapons are. Prayer, faith, salvation, and on and on and on. Those are the weapons of our warfare. So Christians, be faithful in praying and knowing the word. The last point I want to make is this. God's providential hand is always upholding us. Notice again in this passage and how it ends. I drew your attention to it uh, as I was reading the text, chapter 3. Notice it said, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It looks like God's people are in trouble. The plan has been set. They're going to be killed. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. But, but if we read scripture long enough, we know that God always leaves signs of deliverance, does he not? That's the point of scripture. His providential hand is always at play. Uh, permit me two examples, and then I'll let you good people go home and eat your lunch. The first example is found in verse number one. It said, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman The Agagite. And immediately when you saw Agagite, your spiritual spidey senses kicked off. You sitting down there and say, Pastor, I know what Agagite means. It means from the king of Agag. The lineage of the king of Agag, meaning the Amalekites. Meaning the enemy of God. You know, those were the people that picked off God's people when they were coming out of Egypt. So, Pastor, I know exactly what that means. God is saying here is this. As my hand has providentially protected you from the Amalekites that tried to destroy you, I will providentially protect you from this Amalekite that's trying to destroy you. And so even within the text, God is pointing out that he destroyed the Amalekites once He'll destroy the Amalekites again. Notice the second thing. Drop down to verse number seven. It said, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, that that they cast lots. Haman cast lots day after day. Again, I know some of you, your spidey senses went off. Wait a minute. The month of Nisan, that's the first month in the Jewish calendar. That's the month of Passover. And you remember what happened at Passover, right? God delivered his people from Israel with a mighty hand. And again, the passage is telling us in the same way that God delivered his people from the hands of the Egyptians. God will deliver his people from the hand of Haman and King Ahasuerus. Now it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and so I want to give a gift to you, a third point underneath this. (laughs) And notice with me the third and final point that I want to give under this passage. Again, look at Haman the Agagite. If you study Haman the Agagite's name, you will realize that Haman in Hebrew carries with it the idea of the one who causes calamity, and one of the particular characteristics of an guide is pride. And if you pay attention to redemptive history, you know that there was a prideful Satan that came into the garden to cause calamity on God's people, Adam and Eve, causing them to sin. And one of the things that the passage is telling us is the same way God protected Adam and Eve and delivered them from their sin, from the garden. God will deliver us in the same way. Isn't that beautiful and marvelous? Redemptive history is woven all through scripture. And that deliverance, of course, came through Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the only requirement... For full and complete salvation is for us to relinquish our pride and humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. You know, Haman's biggest problem, and it's our problem too, is that pride always gets in the way. We're all agagites. We're all agagites. And the fact of the matter is that unless we ask Jesus to come into our hearts and completely revolutionize our thinking, will commit the same sins that we read here. Beloved, you've heard it before, but it's worth saying again. Your biggest problem isn't that you don't have money or a good marriage. Our biggest problem is that we're Agagites, and we need to humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God and allow him to (coughs) exalt us. That's the big takeaway. Humble ourselves in the midst of tribulation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We do. Um, This text is laden with so much truth, and we don't have time to get into all of it, but you've given your people enough truth. May they lay hold of it and believe it. May they not bow the knee. May they walk in humility. Give them wisdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.